Why does Peter seem to treat trials as a good thing? That's the question we're discussing today on the Hero of the Story presented by the Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you explore the big story and big truth of Scripture. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me, as always, is Brian Dembozik. So, Brian, today we are actually jumping out of Acts for a little bit and and down the ways of down the road of history, in fact, uh, by probably a couple of decades, and uh, jumping into First Peter today. So, why are we doing that? Yeah, well, in Acts, we've seen Peter, of course, we're still in the early part of Acts, and Peter is pretty much the leader of the church at that point. So all of the narrative has kind of centered on him. So it makes sense that we kind of take a step away from that and look at some of the things that Peter wrote. As you said, this is probably two, three decades later, Acts, where we're looking at is probably in the early 30s. Peter wrote First and Second Peter probably in the 60s. Um, so it's roughly 30 years or so after the early part of Acts. But just to see what Peter wrote to the churches in his epistles just makes some sense to us. And um, it also prepares us for what's going to be happening in Acts. We're about to start entering a period where they're going to be going through adversity um, and persecution. And Peter's going to talk about that. Again, the timing is different. He's writing a different context, but the idea is the same. Because we are actually going to look at the first three chapters of the book. We are not going to read the whole thing because, you know that podcast will be about three, four hours long, uh, the way I read, or at least have three, four hours worth of editing. <laughs> there you go. To do. <laughs> but, uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to be bouncing around a little bit throughout those three, throughout those three chapters. Uh, but, uh, we'll have some times where we can just enjoy ourselves and read some of the Bible there you go. too for y'all. So, uh, so, as we are thinking about First Peter 1 to 3, what are some questions that we should be asking about it? Yeah, I think the first one, of course, is the first few verses that you read, chapter 1, verses 1 through about 9, as, as Peter's getting going. And, and before we go there, let's, again, be clear about this. Peter is writing to Gentile Christians scattered in Turkey in the 60s who were being persecuted to some degree. Now, sometimes we think of church history when we kind of solely think of Nero's persecution, for example, from Rome. And that would happen a little bit after this, but there were other waves of persecution as well. There's actually some earlier persecution from the Jews. Again, that's what we're going to see in Acts coming up soon. So um, we have to just kind of think of, of not all persecution was one incident in the scriptures. There were waves of it. So Peter is writing to, again, the, the Gentile believers scattered in Turkey to encourage them. And if you notice in, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, he, he starts by talking about this idea of living hope. And you have to ask, why is he starting there? And it's not hard to see. I mean, what, what do we need in times of suffering, in adversity, in persecution? We need hope. It, and so it, it's setting the tenor for his letter. He's saying, I want you to have hope. I want you to, to know something that is true. As you are navigating uh, these ordeals that, that you're facing, Here's what you need to understand. You are not citizens of earth. You are citizens of the kingdom that will come in full. And our hope, therefore, does not rest in this present world. In your citizenship today, for example, our hope rests in the world that will be 
when Jesus comes and makes all things right. So our hope rests in Jesus Christ. It's an eternal hope that we have in a living Savior. This gives the the context for them to endure the persecution they were facing. It gives us the context to endure anything that we are enduring. This this long-term perspective, this keeping our eyes lifted up instead of down is so important. And it's really going to feed into what where Paul, I mean, Peter takes us after this with talking about how do we live? Because he's not just going to, he doesn't want to just write a letter and say, all right, have hope, grin and bear it, talk to you later. He's going to give instructions about how to live counterintuitively, and it has to be fused to this. We can't live the way he's going to cause us to live without this hope. And that really feeds into that this next question, which is how, if if all that's true, how are we supposed to live in light of our true citizenship? Because that's that big idea that that you were just talking about, right? That you know we are you know we are citizens of the kingdom of God. So therefore, uh, we are called to be holy. Um, and remembering holy means set apart. Yeah. So different is 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 really the big idea here we're not supposed to live exactly the same way as the rest of the world around us the ways of the world are not ours is another way to is another way to think about that so um and that is challenging because that is that's still the call that we have today we we should not look in the way that we live the way that we think the way that we conduct ourselves in in the everyday from uh, from everything from how we engage online to how we engage in the grocery store. Yeah. Um, those things should be different about us in some way. In a winsome way. Yes. or, or even, In a good way. Yeah, in a good way, but even a confusing <laughs> way. Because sometimes the world can look mm-hmm. at us and say, all right, this doesn't make sense. And it may not be like, oh, that's really appealing. But it should not be a negative way. We're not, we're not supposed to be uh, different in a bad way. It should be a good way. Yeah. So, I mean, great example from my own life of not doing that all that well <laughs> uh, happened uh, the morning that we're recording this because my um, my son's bus for, didn't show up at all <laughs> for, for to take to take him to school. That's rude. And so, yeah, it was a little surprising. And so we we were like, okay, what is going on here? Cause you know, he and his mom were waiting out there for, you know, a solid 30 minutes and, um, you know, and so she finally called the school and the, and learned that the bus driver just wasn't coming. <laughs> and so I did not react well to that. <laughs> um, you were not I winsome. Reacted, I was not terribly winsome. I was quite annoyed. Um, you know, but then, I mean, so. this is a good example, Aaron, of, of you know, and, and this is what we're going to talk about in a minute of how this practically, how do we respond yeah. in times like this? When we respond as the world does, it's expected and we, we blend in, we're camouflaged. Um, but when we respect or when we react differently, as, as Peter's going to call our attention to, we're going to stand out and people will take notice and it gives us an opportunity to point them to the reason why we're different, not us, but Christ in us. Exactly. Exactly. So, so really, if we are, if we are whole, if we are called to be holy as God is holy, then, then yeah, that has to be something that we're actively pursuing in the world. Um, it means that we, um, we want that we have to live in such a way that, that, that keeps front and center 
what makes us different. Yeah. So it's not just we want to be different because we want to be nice and kind people. It's we are different because we are diff- fundamentally different people. We are people who have been redeemed by Jesus. We are people who have been raised from the dead, who have been taken uh, out of the ways of the spiritually dead, the people who love darkness and hate light, um, and instead are people who love light, which means fundamentally we are going to, because we love God, we are going to love others. Yeah, and we've talked about this before, Aaron. It's a good time to say it again. When we think of discipleship, maturity, sanctification, however you want to phrase that, I think one of the the better ways to think about it is it's not us learning behaviors that are foreign to us and starting that. It's understanding who we are in our new identity and letting that truth work its way out naturally. So these things you're talking about should be the natural products of who we are. The problem is as when we're new believers, we don't we don't allow that. We're still living as our dead selves. And so the key for discipleship is really letting go of that and letting the spirit work mm-hmm. his natural work in us and through us. And it becomes natural byproducts of how we live. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that we're not going to, that we're not going to mess it up. Sure. I mean, I haven't, I, you know, I, you know, it's been 15 years since I came to faith. So it's not like, um, not like I'm the newest kid on the block, <laughs> but uh, maybe on this podcast, but you're a whippersnapper. Uh, you know, I'm a teenager in the faith. There you go. Teenager in the faith. There we go. So, um, so yeah, so that really leads into, um, another question though, um, which we've started to talk about already, which is how does holy living, how does this express itself? And so Brian, what are some, what are some thoughts? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is where I think we need to kind of slow down and, and kind of, um, add some layers of, of clarity to this. So let, let's kind of take it in, in chunks. I'll take the first one here. And we see this in chapter two, verse one, we see the first thing and that's, we are supposed to not do things. You know, we, we express our holy living. We, we live differently by what we don't do any longer. And that's why, again, Peter in chapter two, verse one says, therefore, because of what we said is, is true, because you are aliens and strangers, because you have this, this hope, this is what you should do. And he says, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Now, that's not going to be an exhaustive list, but you think about it, that list really makes sense for somebody who's going through persecution. When, when we are attacked, what do we want to do in our natural flesh apart from Christ. We want to attack back. So malice makes sense in this context. Deceit, lying makes sense. Hypocrisy, you know, living one way in front of those who will persecute us, living another way in front of the church makes sense. Envy makes sense of those being envious of those who are not being persecuted or those who are in power. Um, slander makes sense that we could slander either others to take the pressure off of us or slander our accusers. All these specific sins, again, Peter is not giving us a list and saying, it's just these. You can, you know, you can continue to steal, but just don't do these. The idea is all sin should be put aside, but especially these, because it makes sense in this context. So what's happening here is, again, think about it practically. As the church is being persecuted, when we don't respond as the world expects, we, we send a message. Right there, there's something 
that is counterintuitive to people that causes them to say there's something different about this person. Why didn't he or she respond the way all those other people have responded? And it gives us a platform to show the change that Christ has wrought in us, but also to tell about this. So, I mean, you think about it, when we do this, we're living as Christ lived. What did he do? He was persecuted. He was martyred. He was killed for doing no wrong. And what did he do? He, he accepted that. And he laid down his life willingly. He sacrificed. And so when we do this as his followers, and he said, you're going you're gonna to follow my footsteps. They're going to persecute you because they persecuted me. When we do this, when we, we don't chase after persecution, but we accept it when it comes. Um, we do this, we are emulating Christ and we are living sacrificially as he did. So, I mean, it's really a, a big way that we do this. And we can take this to practical living because, again, Aaron, we're recording this from the, the belt buckle of the Bible belt um, in, in the Nashville area. We, we don't experience persecution like this. We, some of us in America no. like to talk about this. Hey, we're being persecuted. We go through some adversity and hardship. I would get you, give you that. But we do not experience persecution like Peter had in mind here, like the early church did, like the church in other parts of the world today is experiencing where they are arrested and killed for their faith. We, we don't experience that. So taking it to our level, this even makes sense when we just resist doing the things of the world it, just in general um, when we're not the ones who steal office supplies. Everybody does it. No, we don't. As believers, we don't do that because that's still theft. We, we don't do these things. Uh, when we don't join in and, and mocking somebody else or slandering somebody else with a group who is doing that, and we abstain from that, we're making a statement in these things. And again, we do this, uh, let's not do this with presumption, you know, presumptuously of arrogantly or whatever word I'm looking for there of, you know, yeah. you know, as people are doing, oh no, I, I'm better than you. We don't do it with that posture. But when we do it with a, a humble posture of, no, I, I can't be part of this. This is not right. I can't be part of it. We follow what Peter's talking about here. Yeah, definitely. And along with that, we also have one of those other things that is really quite radical in our culture, which is this call to live in community. And we see this in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2, where he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Um, this this idea, and this is this really is one of these uh, these these things that Scripture bangs the drum on over and over and over again of a shared life, not an isolated life. That um, that really it knows nothing of this idea of. Um, of a, a, basically a, a solo act Christian, <laughs> you know, this idea that it, you can do just me and Jesus and, and be fine. Um, you know, you, when you are saved, you are saved into community. And a lot of us hear those things and we say, okay, sure. 
but I don't experience that. And so the question is, is, well, why? Is it because collectively we haven't fully grasped this? Is it because in this particular area we are living far too much like the world around us where people go to their homes, they put up their, they, they drive up to their home, their houses, they open up the garage door, they pull in their car and they close it again. And they never, ever once talk to their neighbors. Is that, is that one of the reasons? Um, is it because, uh, do we use the excuse of, I'm just a very private person. Um, I'm an introvert. I'm, you know, this, that, or the other thing. My neighbors are just jerks. Um, (laughs) you know, um, there are a lot of, there are a lot of things that we use as excuses for this. And we can talk about these things from the, we can, we can look at these things from the perspective of, well, okay, we're, you're talking about your neighbors. Your neighbors aren't necessarily Christians. They're the people, but they are people around you. You should know who they are for, um, at a minimum for the purposes of getting to know them, serving them in the name of Jesus so that maybe you can proclaim the gospel um, with them. But here, again, we're talking about the context of the church. And so we can't take that that isolationist um, solo life mentality into the church at all. Um, We need to be willing to to get rid of, like, to, to reject that outright in our communities. The problem is, is that that's that takes time. It takes intentionality. Um, and so to do it, um, it's, it's, it's just not easy. But it's so important. You know, you think about it. One of the, one of the greatest ways the church can make a tangible difference in our culture today is by living in loving unity because you don't see it. You, adversity, yeah. arguing, uh, separating over differences. We're finding more and more ways as a culture to separate from one another. When, when, if the world were able to see the church loving each other in unity, allowing for diversity and celebrating that diversity, but mm-hmm. living in a way of true unity, man, can you imagine the impact we could have? Yeah. Oh, it'd be incredible. And I think an important point here to 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 reference because you used you used the idea you used the term um, celebrating diversity or or recognizing diversity as well. Um, um, what when we use that term? Yes, it can de- can and should definitely mean differences in ethnicity, yep. but it can also be simply differences of opinion. Yes. The church is called to unity, not uniformity. Yes. And so because of that, we need to be able to allow for differing convictions on secondary and tertiary matters. Um, you know, you and I, Brian, we don't entirely agree on a lot of yeah. things, um, but we agree on the big stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and and so we get along, we get along pretty well, all things considered, um, you know, given our personalities. <laughs> but Because uh, nobody else wants to get along with us. We're all we have. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Even our wives don't like no, us that much. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, let's um, move on before we get in trouble. Yeah, let's move on. Let's move on. <laughs> <All right>. But, um, 
<laughs> but this is the this is the idea is is that um you know if you uh, like your convictions on a particular issue should not be should not necessarily be the thing that destroys community yeah. that, that breaks community it shouldn't have to do that there's certain things that we do have to divide over of course but um can uh but let's just use a nice safe one of you know uh views on baptism so presbyterian our presbyterian friends yes. Um, they believe it is acceptable to that that it is acceptable, right, and good according to Scripture to uh, to baptize babies. As Baptistic believers, we disagree with that. Sounds ironically. But. <laughs> That's right. We but we hold to we hold to a creedal yes. baptism, uh, which where one must profess faith in order to be baptized. So this is a good example of where, so it would be right and fitting for us to have a different church, a Presbyterian church and a Baptist church, because yes. that, that does matter. There is a theological weightiness to it that does cause problems if we were worshiping together and under the same leadership. That's it, it, a problem. But we divide in love. So I don't, yeah. I don't give the Presbyterian church a dirty look as I drive by it. Those are my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'll join. Yeah, we just disagree. Yeah, on we this. <laughs> we lock arms in many different things, but in this we would disagree. Um, yeah. Another one, I think, would be even safer within a a church itself. Eschatology. Your your understanding. How's that safer? It's safer Brian? because whether you believe how <laughs> we all believe that Jesus is returning. Well, that's it's true. how he. We can we can disagree on how it happens or when it happens, <laughs> but we know that's going to happen. So it should not divide. You could have people in the same church still. See, this is when I don't think we should have a, a first Baptist church of pre-trib and a second Baptist church of a-trib or a millennials or whatever. <laughs> I, I think you can be an an amill guy and you can be a dispensationalist or whatever in the same church together. Mm -hmm. So I think it's safer from that regard. All right. Yeah, I think that's fair. All right. Let's, so before we get ourselves in more trouble, let's move on. All right. So we we kind of talked about we're still in this big. Again, we landed here for a little bit longer. This the big idea is to reset it. How does such holy living express itself? We've talked about what we don't do. We talked about living in community. The third thing is we by what we do. Um, chapter two, verses twelve through seventeen. This is what we read. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. So it's not just accepting the, uh, the persecution that comes that we talked about before and not re re responding in kind. It's putting good works. And then he continues in verse 13. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedoms to cover up for evil, but as God's slaves, honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. So I love what he says here that not only when we're wrong, do we not lash out in sin, but when we're wrong, we continue to do good. This is what Jesus had in mind by turning the other cheek, for example, going the extra mile, um, giving your coat. What we want to do is live in a countercultural way, willing to submit, even when it's costly for us. And we do so 
uh, to prompt this, again, this recognition that we are different. Um, we're responding in a way that doesn't make sense in a good way. And people say, why are you doing this? And we point to Jesus. So to love somebody who is even acting unloving to us, um, to buy that person a, a coffee or a meal when we see him or her in a restaurant, and, and just as an act of, of, of kindness and love to them, this is what Jesus is talking about also when he talked about loving our enemies, that we, we just love no matter mm-hmm. what. Now, does this mean we are to be doormats? Not necessarily. We're going to talk about that in a, in, a, in a second a little bit. But what this does mean is that we love and we seek to do good even when we're wronged. Brian, those are some good thoughts. And, you know, there is another question that comes up. It's it's a very tense one because of some of the language that is in chapter two toward the end. Uh, verses 18 through around verse six of chapter three, there is this, this call for slaves to submit to masters. And that is difficult language. Uh, in in large part because we we com- we understand slavery is not a good thing, <laughs> and um, you know there are a lot of there there have been a lot of attempts to you know explain you know explain away these these kind of things and say well slavery wasn't you know like slavery now then that kind of thing. Um, or what Americans most often think of when they think of of slavery, which is, um, you know, the American experience of chattel slavery. Of yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, and so, while there are nuances that that history can help us understand um, in terms of the the slavery experience in the Roman Empire, uh, regardless, we should understand that it's not a good yeah. thing. And. The question that become and the question that we see here is, is Peter condoning slavery? And on top of that, is he condoning, um, you know, abusive households and abusive husbands? Is he is he saying wives should because he speaks to he speaks to marriages as well. And he's and he's encouraging women to submit to their husbands. And well, and so we naturally have this question of, well, what about an abusive husband? What about, you know, what about these kind of situations? Those are good questions. And so what we need to acknowledge here is, is that Peter is not condoning either situation. What he is doing here, though, is he's pointing to two common ways that Christians might endure persecution and suffering and how to live in a holy way. He's not saying these things are good and these are good and right and fine and that God is okay with them. Um, that's the, that's the kind of logic that's used, um, to wrongfully ignore the Bible. It's also the same kind of language, the same kind of logic that is used to try and suggest that the Bible condones things like polygamy because it describes it happening. And some of the people who are considered heroes of the faith and heroes of the story of scripture that, um, play integral roles that they were polygamists. And that's not the case at all. The Bible does not condone the abuse of and the abuse and mistreatment of human beings, period. Because 
to do that is to is to deny the image of God in those people. So abusive husbands are ignoring the image of God in their wives through their abuse. Slave owners are denying the image of God in those they are treating as property. Neither is acceptable. The question is, is what do the people to whom he was writing, how do they respond to this? And it's, and it's different. It's fundamentally different than what we would expect. Yeah. And I think, you know, just to be, this is a really important kind of idea here and to amplify it, you know, we just have to be careful. Let scripture say what it says. Don't, let's not read into what we think it's saying or what it should say or what it doesn't say. It here, Peter is simply saying, if you find yourself as a slave, or if you find yourself in a marriage and you're, you're as a woman and your husband is not a believer, even if it's not a good one, here's what I want to encourage you to do. So he's just dealing with what is those practical situations. So from us, you know, I would say this, I, I think we have to address this. I would say if, 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 if somebody's listening and, and you are in an abusive relationship, your husband is abusing you or whatever, um, then I would say your safety is paramount. Do what you need mm-hmm. to be safe. The difference here of what, what Peter says, you as a believer, how you should respond, again, goes back to what we just talked about, that you are not using this as an opportunity, even though you are being wronged that you are not responding in sin, slander and so forth that he talked about, um, that you are seeking, that you are praying for your spouse, that you are wanting the best for him and seeking repentance in him and from him and desiring that, um, you know, that, that you are doing these things that we just talked about before, but this does not mean that you would allow yourself to remain in a position where it is dangerous for you in some belief that that is honoring God. That is not. Yeah, you want to be safe. And, and I want to be crystal clear about that, lest nobody be confused. Lest anybody yes. be confused. Yes. Well, yeah. And that is a, that's a really tricky thing. And this is, this is just one of these, these passages that even just talking about in general, inevitably we're going to step on a landmine. Yeah. And so I really appreciate you, you, just reminding us of this encouragement. Let it say what it says, but don't don't read more in than what's there. And so there is, yeah, it is. It is. It needs to be handled sensitively yeah. <laughs> every single time that it comes up. And um, you know, thinking about how, how the church, how the church together in community lives a holy li- holy life in these two areas this is a way this is an opportunity for for us if we want the world to see that we are different yeah. we need to approach these situations differently exactly so as a church let's just think about this for a second how do we how do we as a church come alongside those who are in abusive situations how can we help them yeah and how can we help them be yeah, safe yeah and and i think that's practically from a church perspective but it's I think there are some general principles that we, we do what we can to protect. We, we intervene out of love. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and let me say this mm-hmm. as well. I think we need to be clear. When we've been speaking of abuse mostly from a male abusing a female, it can happen the other way around as well. And yes. also, it could be children involved. It could be 
not just physical, there are other ways of abuse as well. This is, there are many different things. Somebody listening right now could be thinking of many different scenarios. Um, but the church, this is where community helps that we step in, we intervene. Um, we, we make sure that that person is safe. We go through church discipline practices that are designed not for punishment, but for restoration. That again, the church stepping in to say, there's something, there's sin going on, there's danger going on, and we're going to step in. At times it can mean the church contacting legal agencies and, and getting the law involved. Um, so it, it's a matter of the church being careful to protect the vulnerable. Um, the scripture says a lot about that. And it's about the church pre- preserving the, the honor and the glory of Christ and how we handle these things. We have seen, Aaron, unfortunately, the church has been revealed to, to have failed in this area quite a bit recently. And it has brought mm-hmm. dishonor to Christ because we failed to do what we've been called to do as com- in, in community. So this is where we have to take this seriously, not only for the good of that person in that abusive relationship or those people, but again, for the, for the honor of Christ, which is what Peter's talking about here. The way we respond is not just about us, it's about Christ. We're revealing to the watching world who Christ is and how we respond. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to our last segment here, which we've, you know, we've hit so much of this already, but let's just really reiterate a couple of things here as we think about how to apply this from a discipleship perspective. And really the first thing that I would say, and and I'll let you handle the last okay. one, which is that we need to, we need to take Peter's instructions uh, that, that, that he gives the church in his letter. Um, we need to heed those just as much at, um, today as, as believers did first reading this and first hearing it spoken to them. Um, we need to know that as as important to us as and valuable to us as our earthly citizenships may be so whether we're americans or canadians um you know citizens of the the uk um whatever (laughs) um that we belong to a greater kingdom and so those those identities as Americans, Canadians, British citizens, Australians, Italians, again, you name it. um, Those are secondary to our citizenship in God's kingdom. And so we want to, we want to recognize, we want to acknowledge our world, our earthly worldly citizenships, but they, but they are secondary Um, along with that. Um, and and that feeds into this next this next element of it, which is that that our hope then, if if our hope is not in our and source of identity is not in our earthly citizenships and our you know and in all of the the trappings that come with that, um, it helps us to remember our hope that our hope is in Jesus and not in a you know not in any sort of um, political personality or let piece of legislation or any of these kinds of things, but that we can endure all things because of Christ. 
And that's what ultimately uh, fuels our ability to live as holy people today. Yeah. I think the other thing that this takes us to a, a something really practical that we can do with this um, is it's a reminder for us to be praying for the persecuted church. As we talked about earlier, um, statistically, I've heard this, that there is more persecution of the church today than ever in history. history. There are websites that you can research persecution in the world today, um, identifying certain areas that that uh, that really need our careful prayers and attention. And so to be a people praying for the church, and, and this is where I would want us to be careful, um, I think the natural tendency is that we pray that they escape persecution or that it ends, and, and, and we can to a degree. But keep in mind what Peter's talking about. Keep in mind what Jesus said, that we will be persecuted. I think uh, the, 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 the more important prayer that we need to always be offering is that, that believers endure persecution, stand within it um, faithfully to Christ, that they do what Peter's talking about here. That we, so we pray for those who are being persecuted now that they will be found faithful in persecution. But also I think to pray for future persecution. There could be a day when persecution expands and that what happens if we find ourselves in a position, may we be found faithful. May God continue to grow us and mature us in such a way that we will be found faithful. Um, and even now, as we're going through milder forms of persecution, adversity, whatever you want to call it, you know, that we can, we respond well in this. If we can't respond well in this, how would we respond in more severe persecution faithfully? So to be praying for these things, I think is, is really, really important. Definitely. Definitely. All right. Well, Brian, that is a good place for us to wrap this up for today. Um, so thanks for chatting about this and thank you all for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on Apple podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to the show. And for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com. 